Mom has gotten really good at hiding me. 14 schools, 12 years, nine cities. Every place is the same, a backdrop I blend into. Anytime mom gets suspicious someone might know about the poison running through my veins, she stuffs our entire life into a tiny yellow hard shell suitcase. It's perplexing that my entire existence can be tucked into something so small and shoved into the trunk of a car. At first, I'd stuff everything I could in my bag. Now I just grab my tennis shoes, a phone charger, and my lucky keychain. The countless places we've moved and the blur of faces I'll say goodbye to are the white space between memories, ellipses strung between unfinished sentences. I stopped asking where we were going a long time ago because running's become a destination all its own. With only three weeks of high school left, I'm trying to work as much as I can to save up enough for the big plans mom and I have, to finally move somewhere and stay. After graduation, our plan is to find some small beach town, a real beach, not like the muddy water we've been around these last six months in New Orleans, and blend in with the sand. Only three more weeks. That's a quote from House of Marion by J.L. This is YA Book Chat, and I'm your host, Leah Stuhler. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of YA Book Chat. Thank you so much for being here and for listening, and as always, for your support of the podcast. Today, we are going to be chatting about a brand new book called House of Marion by J.L., and this book is just newly released on August 29th, and this is a fantastic book, and I am very excited to have the author, J.L., herself here with me. Jay is the New York Times indie bestselling and a award-winning author of multiple books, including Against the Tide, an original prequel novel tie-in to the Little Mermaid live-action film. Her debut duology, Wings of Ebony, dubbed an incredible debut by NPR and Best Fantasy Books by Pop Sugar, was a 2022 NAACP Image Award nominee for Outstanding Literary Work for Youth and Teens, an Amazon Editor's Pick for Best Science Fiction and Fantasy, and a Barnes & Noble YA Book Club Pick. Also, a first novelist American Library Association honor book and the recipient of a Kirkus Star Review. The book that we're going to be talking about today, House of Marion, is being translated into 10 languages across five continents. So this is very exciting. Um, You are probably the most award-winningest author I have had on here. (laughs) I love that. So welcome to the podcast, Jess, and why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself? I feel like you covered it. (laughs) I have four pets. I feel like that's kind of random. Um, yes, I'm an author. I'm a mom. I, I'm a zookeeper in my house because I do have four animals. I, I can't um, see a stray pass by and not try to offer them food at home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a former military spouse. I write full time. I didn't always. At one point, I was a wedding photographer in Southern California. I have also been a school administrator. I've done a myriad of things, a jack of all trades, maybe a master of none, um, but I'm having fun with writing right now. So I love that. That's great. I I tend to do a bunch of things myself. I am a 
teacher, but I'm also obviously a podcaster. I am an editor for a blog. I also do storytelling for children because I used to be an actor. Like, so I've done a lot of stuff too. So I love, I love that. I always love meeting other people who are also as uh, jack of all trades and do all the things so that I know I'm not alone in my world over here. Okay, I'm curious now because I also have pets, although we have three. We have two kittens and a fish. What kind of pets do you have? So I have two dogs and two cats. Um, I have a Maltese and a hound. And then I have a Calico who was an outdoor cat that we brought in for some inclement weather and has just refused to leave. (laughs) (laughs) But she grew up an outdoor cat. So she's like not a touchy-feely cat. She's like... Uh give me my space. And so my friend owns a vet clinic. And I was like, if you ever find a snuggly cat, please call me. Literally two days later, someone found a snuggly cat on the side of the road and brought it to her. And she called me immediately. It is a Siamese cat. He has the most beautiful blue eyes. His name is Sky. And he likes to be like a scarf around your neck. Mm -hmm. He is, he's like a teddy bear. I love that. I have to have cuddly cats too. We just got these kittens and one of them is super snuggly and he does the same thing where he's all up on top of me and it's like a scarf. The other one will snuggle, but not always like right there. He'll like snuggle on your lap. So one is more than the other, but even still, I love it. I love a snuggly kitty. (laughs) Well, what drew you to writing fantasy books? Oh gosh. Well, I love to read first of all. And I, and I did slash do read a lot of contemporary fiction, but there's just something that's just so exciting about magic and the imagination. And so (laughs) to be really honest, the first time I ever considered writing a story, it started out very regular. And then my characters had a problem and I was like, there's no way to fix this. And I was like, Ooh, magic. And here we are in a fantasy novel suddenly. So um, I think it's just my heart for story. I love the element of surprise um, that fantasy brings. And I think there's something really powerful about being able to uh, conceive of the unimaginable, like to be able to wrap your brain around something that's like, impossible is like very inspiring like as a concept like oh man Mm -hmm. I can write about and believe in something impossible and it's like gosh that's probably really good for my soul (laughs) (laughs) it is I love it and I I love a good fantasy and magic especially which is one of the reasons I loved your book so much because the magic in it is just so fantastic and it's enthralling and I love it so why don't you tell everyone what House of Marion is all about Sure. Okay. So I'd like to say Severion is like Game of Thrones meets Succession with tiaras and pretty dresses. <laughs> How Severion follows Kel, who has been on the run from a secret society because of a forbidden dark magic that she has. But when she's almost caught by an assassin hunting her, she runs to one of the training schools for proper magic. She intends to master this sort of proper form of magic in order to bury her dark magic forever. But her dark magic is determined to not be buried. And to make matters worse, she might be falling in love, definitely falling in love, with an (laughs) assassin in training from a rival house. You know, it's always going to be trouble when you're the person you're falling in love with as an assassin in training. (laughs) I was like, of all people, of course, this is who she's going to end up having feelings for. (laughs) Just makes it more dangerous and exciting. I love that. (laughs) 
And this world that you created, you know, like you said, it's just, it's very glamorous. It's enthralling and magical and dark at the same time. Um, I feel like it's everything that you could want in a fantasy, but it's also in a contemporary setting, but you kind of forget that a little bit reading the book because they're in their own world in this school for the good magic. And then it also has that world of like the debutantes built in. So it's, there's something for everybody in this story. Tell me what it was like for you creating this world and how it developed. Absolutely. It started with the idea of a tiara growing out of someone's skull. (laughs) (laughs) Like once I saw that in my head, I couldn't unsee it. And I just couldn't get the juxtaposition of beauty and darkness out of my mind. So from there, I began to think about a central love story because every book that I love always has romance, (laughs) unless it's a middle grade novel. All my YA novels and maybe one day adult novels will have romance at the center. But I began to think about like what the central love story should be. And I knew I wanted to do enemies to lovers or like forbidden love, um, that kind of vibe. I just, there some of my favorite stories um, play with the tension of this is forbidden, but we can't help ourselves. And so I knew I wanted to do something like that. The third component I think that occurred to me very early in the story was I wanted complex gray characters. Mm. Um, there are no perfect choices in life. And I wanted to write characters who really bring that idea to life. The characters that stick with me the longest, like in stories that I read or TV shows or movies that I watch, are the ones who wrestle with this concept uh, where you like start a series and you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot stand this character. And I feel like that is the power of like good storytelling. I think of like, these are some adult shows, but to to harken back to my comps, um, if anyone's familiar with Game of Thrones or ever heard of that book, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Tyrion Lannister is one of the characters in there that I was just like, I don't know how I feel about you. And then by the end of the series, at least the book series, I was like, you're, you're all right with me. I trust you now. And even Jamie Lannister to an extent. <laughs> um, and then when I think about Succession, which was all the rave recently, squarely contemporary show, obviously set in like New York, but Kendall and Roman Roy, it's like, and Shiv, I'm like, do I hate you guys? Do I love you guys? It depends on the day. And like mm-hmm. that to me is like amazing storytelling. And even just to throw it back to the Vampire Diaries, like Stefan and, and um, Damon, like, do I love you? Do I hate you? Like, you know, so I love that so much. And so I really wanted to deep dive into what makes certain characters behave certain ways, like really get into the nuance of their emotions and their motivations and how those things can be in conflict, like what you need and what you want can be wrestling in yourself and like, who's going to win? And, and is it okay if either one wins? Is there a definitive right and wrong, you know? And when we look at like atrocities or less popular choices in real life, who do we blame? Do we blame the monster or do we blame the person or the system who created the monster? That's not an easy question. It's like a little uncomfortable. And I just love that. I love stories that make me think. I mean, first and foremost, I want to entertain the reader and like take them on this swoony thrill ride. But I also want to leave them with a nugget that just like burrows itself into their mind. And so I love books that make us sort of shift in our seat a bit. Um, but beyond that, I really just wanted to write kissing. So here we are. (laughs) (laughs) You can't go wrong with that. (laughs) I love a good enemies to lovers trope. And, um, yeah, like all that you just, I, it's, it was so fun reading this because, you know, like you just said, I was, as I was reading it going through and I'm like, okay, whose fault is what's happening here? Do I blame her mother? Do I blame her grandmother and this system? Or is it somebody else's fault? Like it was, you know, I, I definitely did go back and forth and try and like 
in my brain, like, okay, who's at fault here? And is, is this assassin's boyfriend really the bad guy or, you know, so there was a lot there and I loved it. I also love the magic system in the story because there are six different ways that magic can be used properly. So somebody can transfigure anatomy or they can transfigure sound. They can transfigure matter or they can remove magic is the fourth way. And then um, the fifth way is they can transfer knowledge. And the sixth way is the ones who are the assassins, the dragoons. So we have that, which is how it can be used properly. But then we have the dark magic, the Tushana. Kel decides that she wants to try and push down her Tushana by using the good magic. However, her Tashana has a mind of its own and it doesn't want to be pushed away so easily. So we see Kel, you know, struggling back and forth and fighting that. So talk to me about, you know, kind of developing this magic system and kind of figuring out how it would all work, because there's definitely a lot of different things going on with it. You know, the magic system was a monster of of a creation, (laughs) to be really honest, and it kind of took on... It took on a mind of its own, like the Tashana. <laughs> the more I dug into it, I wrote like what I like to call a zero draft of the story, which is just kind of like when I start writing and I I have a loose plot, I have a loose plan, but my entire goal is just to feel out what the story feels like emotionally, where are the strings of tension, what's exciting, what's boring. So I don't, there are no sort of expectations. So I call it a zero draft. And I got to about 88,000 words of that just to explore what I wanted the magic system to feel like, what I wanted it to accomplish. And then I deleted all all of it and started over. Oh, (laughs) goodness. Um, And that was about two years before I turned the book in. So to give you an idea, I also did that all in a month. It was like NaNoWriMo or something. But it was just an idea of like, if I just like take all the expectations off of myself, what do I want this magic to do? And for me, I'm a very much like I need to touch it and see it and feel it to know what it is kind of person. So I needed to be able, I couldn't conceptually contrive a magic system on paper. I start there, but then I have to actually put it into practice and write scenes with the character using it and write moments where the magic is going wrong and write myself into different corners to see, is this magic that's really going to work for what I need? And so that's kind of what that exploratory draft is. From there, once I knew, okay, I want this sort of magic that is beautiful and yet dark and has all of these sort of different perspectives on it. Then I wrote a history and lore for the magic system, tracing its inception, how it was shepherded through the years. I detailed seasons of like when it had to go into hiding because the people who knew about it had to protect it. Then it went into a huge, um, in the Renaissance era, I went through a huge period of growth and study because it was a big area of just like study overall um, and like development in the sciences and things of that nature. And so magic too was being developed in under the guise of, oh, this is just science. But really it was this early sort of, uh, bones of what the secret society would become. They were they were working on and developing this magic. And then at a certain point, it had to go underground again. So I traced magic from its inception to modern times through history. And that was about 220,000 words. And I, I just set it aside. And I 
from there, I wanted to ensure the, the combination of those two things allowed me to, it gave me a sandbox to play in, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It's like, okay, I, so I know my magic. I know what it does. I know the history. I know where it came from. I know it's it's the different people who have fought for it, the different people who have died for it, the different people who feel different ways about it based on their relationship with it, the people who were shunned from it, the people who were allowed to embrace it. And so now I plant myself in the story and go, okay, now it's time to build my sandcastle. Um, and so it, like, it was truly a monster of creation. I've never, I've never worked this uh, in depth on a book's magic system or history, but I knew I wanted it to be a large series. And so I knew I need, the world needed the breath to keep up with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes across on the page really, really nicely. It also gives us plenty to dive into in future books, because I mean, who doesn't love a world that's so deep and vast, we can just get lost in it for years to come. Yeah, definitely. And I love that you went that in depth with it. That's crazy. But I mean, that's fantastic. Because if that's what you're doing, then it, you know, it's going to definitely going to translate into the book. And it does because, you know, there's one point where Kel is in the mansion and, you know, she's walking and seeing these different tiaras that have come down from different people, you know, during the years. And so you can tell even just from that one small section that your magic system is really well developed because it's got this whole history behind it. That's really, I love that you did that. That's really cool. Let's talk about a little bit of the romance too, because we got to get on that. So (laughs) always up for that. So Cal, you know, she's trying to master her good magic and push her Tashana away. But then, of course, she's falling in love with this guy who's training to be an assassin, but not just any assassin, an assassin to kill people who have Tashana. And so, I mean, that's going to put a bit of a damper on your relationship when you have Tashana, right? Um, But it makes it so much fun to read and, you know, watch these two characters, Kel and Jordan, as their relationship develops. So talk to me about these characters and kind of creating this dynamic between them where they're falling for each other, but they have this huge secret also that's in between them. So, I mean, I had a guy who lives and breathes duty to the magical order which we'll just say has its issues. <laughs> and I had a girl who is dying to be a part of this world, even at the risk of erasing herself. To me, that just said obvious romance. Like, <laughs> obviously, they need to fall in love. I wanted them to have chemistry right off. So that's one thing that I, I did in this book. I wanted them to be attracted to each other emotionally, yes. But I wanted them to have that sort of nostalgic like feeling you get when you meet someone and you really like them and maybe it's because they're cute or maybe it's you like the way they dress or maybe it's something silly or you don't know but it gives you butterflies every time you're in their presence like that sort of like first love flutter that you don't have language for you just know it's a feeling and you're drawn to a person so that was really important I wanted them to have undeniable chemistry and then beyond that I wanted to build a deeper connection. I wanted that undeniable chemistry be something that forces them to like give space and time to that chemistry and wonder, is there something deeper here? And sure enough, there is. And I wanted to build that deeper connection that got to the core of who they are and how they view the world and themselves and how those things, those respective views could use some changing. I think there's just not a better vignette than a love story to really get at the heart of people's worldview because there's vulnerability involved. And so Jordan, the love interest is not someone who's ever been vulnerable. Kel is the first person. Well, there was this one little tussle he got himself involved in back at his own house, 
but that pales in comparison to the vulnerability that he experiences with Kel. And so it's really interesting to watch this guy who is like bred to be a killer find this soft place in himself where it feels like she fits. It's a risk for him, you know, and this isn't really a spoiler, but I'll just say in the order in this, in this is in this magical order, assassins are called dragons. And there's a whole reason for that. And you learn about the lore behind the name when you read, but um, dragons, it's not restricted that you don't have a significant other, but it's strongly discouraged because I think it's a distraction. Mm-hmm. And I modeled that after like special forces. Cause I was, my husband was in the military for a while. We have some special forces friends. And so I was just digging into the research of that. And I was like, you know, they don't tell you not to have a spouse, but they sure do say, you know, mm-hmm. a spouse can be, or even a significant other can be like a vulnerability. And so I wanted to play with that culture and see, you know, which side of the wash Jordan is going to come out on is duty going to win or is love going to win? Yeah. It's almost just as you were saying this, you know, it kind of made me think too of like, I don't know if you're a Star Wars person or not, but it's like Jedi Knights are not supposed to have be in a relationship either. And because it's a distraction. And then, you know, we all know Anakin Skywalker gets in a relationship and then it's all downhill from there. So we love us some Natalie Portman in that movie. Gosh, that is one of my favorite performances. She's so from great. Natalie Portman. I love her. Oh my goodness. But yes, no, exactly. I love how compelling that is, but it's the same, it's the head and heart, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. or this system is telling me, and the reason they do that is because this order, this organization wants to be your first love. And it's like, I don't know if the heart agrees with that, maybe for some people, but for Jordan, it was, it was, it was a struggle. And just to, so everybody who's listening can understand, because you mentioned how Jordan is from a different house than Kel is. So there are four different houses that people are from and the, and where they go and they can develop their magic skills. And so Jordan and Kel are from two different houses. So just to be clear on that in this world also, okay. There, so there, there, we've got this magic, but then we also have them that they're really in this world of social elites and debutantes. I mean, there's tiaras, ball gowns, classes on manners and behavior, how to eat with the right fork. Like, you know, we have um, very wealthy families, you know, they have a cotillion, but underneath it all, you know, we really see that there's a power, a power struggle that's going on because the headmistresses of each of the houses are all fighting for power and they want power over each other, over the magic, even themselves. And aside from magic, of course, these are all real power struggles that we're constantly seeing in our society today. And in addition to, you know, this power struggle, we have Kel's headmistress, who's putting a lot of pressure on her to really be perfect and to pass each one of her tests that she has to do very quickly. And so, um, you know, talk to me about your decision to kind of include this power struggle in it, because, you know, like I said, this is something that we see in our society and, um, you know, why this was important to you to, to bring this to light and in the story. So, I mean, the world lives and breathes power, like the real world. When we look at places in the world where there's the most destitute poverty, there are power structures in those places that live completely different, detached lives, saturated in wealth and abundance. And yet there can be these very, very, there are these very poor, impoverished pockets. And it, it's 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 kind of jarring because it's just mm-hmm. like, if they have so much power, why aren't they using it to help these people who live very differently? I think power is the currency that makes the, the the world go around. Money is just one of the mediums. But I, I think what, it, I, I often say, what is money but a means to attain power? 
Um, There's not enough compassion in this world, in my opinion. And when I look at this country and where power lies and where it does not lie, it often revolves around wealth. So in a fictional setting, I wanted to explore that. Um, I also love history. And so creating a world where I could trace the power back to its roots and play with whose hands it ends up in, because if you trace the history, and one day I hope to be able to share this full history with readers, like maybe later in the series, but there's just this robust sort of roadmap that the power follows, and it it goes to surprising places. It ends up in great people's hands. It ends up in not so great people's hands, and it's just fascinating to see like how people sacrifice for it. Um, When I think of like the Lord of the Rings, right, Mm -hmm. and I think about how the power of the ring was so like coveted and um, protected, you know, on the journey. And so there's definitely some inspiration from wanting to take the questions that the Lord of the Rings left me with and wanted to describe, <laughs> like go deeper and like modernize those things. Um, so, but my love of history was definitely a big, big part here. I wanted to, you know, look at, as I was saying, playing with whose hands power ends up being in the desperate lengths people will go to, to protect power, or in this case, magic. I find that all very fascinating. A 19th century British historian said, all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that was something that turned over that I turned over in my mind again and again, as I wove this complex story and these complex characters where you're like, well, who's wrong? I love that you were asking those questions as you read. Like, who's wrong? Mm-hmm. Is this person wrong? Is this person's kind of wrong? Is this person right? Oh my gosh, but they're a villain. Oh my gosh, am I agreeing with the villain? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, that's my whole goal. And when I, as authors, I think we have the job of creating thought-provoking entertainment. And I think mm-hmm. House of Marion strikes the chord melodiously. Um, it's so much fun, but like all great stories, I think it has a sharp message to the reader about existing in society and having the courage to be yourself within that society and how that is ultimately power. It, it, it definitely does. You know, and I'm, you know, reading this story and also, you know, because of all the wealth and everything, and I'm just sitting there thinking like, you know if this is what this is going to be like, like, I don't want to be like, I've never been like, Oh, I need money. You know what I mean? But like, I, I, I've definitely had the thought, boy, if I made a little bit more, it would be very helpful. Right. But like, just kind of seeing the power struggle and how it goes. And even with some of Kel's friends, um, you know, there's a couple of little things that happen and some of the, the heirs to some of the other houses we're seeing how they act. I it was just like, boy, I would never want to live in a, you know, atmosphere like this. And I'm glad that I'm not like really wealthy and wasn't raised in a wealthy family to have to deal with this kind of power struggle. But um, yeah, because it really is real. And I just interviewed Jameson Shea about their book, I Feed Her to the Beast and the Beast is Me. And that also has a power struggle in it, but it's a little bit different. And it is a villain origin story. And so that her character's power, like, you know, take takes his power and becomes this like monstrous kind of villain. And it's fantastic too. So there's lots of different ways to go with it and explore it. And um, it's all fantastic and definitely comes through very well in your story. I also love the diversity of characters that you have in this book. It's so fantastic because we have people of color. There are queer characters, people from a variety of different cultures. We have, of course, morally gray characters. So talk to me about your intentionality behind creating such a diverse cast. Oh my gosh, I worked so hard on this. (laughs) And I really can't wait for readers to see more of the world because 
you only get a sampling of the diversity in this world in book one. Like the world is so vast and so epic. And I had to pull back on a lot of things because you are in this localized, for those who haven't read, you spend most of the book in one house. And you're sort of like within the walls of the house, which is a giant estate, but still you're in the walls of this one house, but you don't really get to see too much of the external world where there is so much more um, diversity. Simply put, I write books that reflect the world we live in. Um, Mm. It was important to me to ensure that anyone could pick up this book and find a place to imagine themselves, including and especially marginalized readers like myself. And that's fantastic. I think it's so important that we do have you know, diversity included in books. You know, I remember when I was growing up, it, I mean, of course at the time I'm growing up, I didn't think about it too much when I was younger, but looking back, I'm like, oh my goodness, the books that I read were probably like totally like mostly white people and not like, not even thinking that's just what was presented to me. You know, I think my first probably experience of really reading any kind of diversity in a book was when I read the babysitters club. And that's because it has an Asian character, Claudia Kishi in it, you know, and, and, but it wasn't even, so it's, it's great to see like how far representation has come because it's so important for readers to be able to see themselves in the book, you know, and see themselves in the character. So I really love that you did that. And I know your readers are really going to appreciate that too. Thank you. Thank you. I was just going to say, I think also the really, I think publishing obviously has a, a lot further to go and there's more we can do. But what I'm really hoping is I haven't seen global diversity like this in very many romantic fantasies in the YA mm-hmm. space. And so I'm really hoping that this book is is sort of groundbreaking in that regard too. Um, because yes, like you, uh, a lot of the things that I read, most of the things that I read as a kid, I did not see myself in. And so I I see all these all these kids. You know, I think about my my I have three children, my three children's friends, and how many countries are represented just in their friend groups. And I'm just <laughs> like every single one of them should be able to pick up a book and find a place for themselves in the world, on the, especially in a fantasy world. I mean, you know, because in a fantasy world, I get to make it up. I get to make it look like whatever I want. And so why wouldn't I want it to look like the beautiful world that we live in? Yeah, exactly. I love that. You mentioned earlier uh, at the beginning of the book, Kel is trying to uh, escape from an assassin, but the story in the book is actually told from two POV. So we have Kel and then we have one of the dragon assassins whose name is Yagran, and he has been hired to kill Kel because of her Tashana. Kel knows that she's being hunted, but she doesn't know who it's by specifically. So she doesn't know like who he is. So it makes, but they, they have a lot of, um, interactions with each other without realizing it necessarily. She doesn't realize it, I should say. So it's a very intriguing and interesting dynamic that we see. We have, you know, the hunted and the hunter. So talk to me about your decision to include Yagrin's POV in it, because I mean, it definitely would have still been a fantastic story without that, but I think it just adds more to it with having his perspective as well. Totally. So I think Yagrin serves two purposes. I read Darker Shade of Magic by by Schwab and fell in love with the character right away. Like by page two, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this person. And I will never forget an idea sparked with before I even finished reading that. Um, the idea, the concept of Yagrin, the reluctant assassin, came to me um, before I even finished reading that book. I was just so inspired by just the voice and just the reluctancy and in the main, the opening scene, I just thought it was brilliant, a brilliant way to pull me in. Somebody who's doing a job that they're tasked to do, but they don't necessarily want to do the job. So that idea sparked from reading. And 
I wanted to be, I wanted to write a story that put us in the head of someone who has to do ter- horrible things, but with regret. Because again, I love challenging the reader to see people through their own lenses. I think that's sort of the bridge to empathy um, and to really wrestle with who the monster is, as I mentioned before. Uh, Jamie Lannister, here we are again. He's awful, like absolutely terrible. And yet by the end of Game of Thrones, when I saw his relationship with his father and I saw his relationship with his sister, I began to pity him some instead of just hating him. And it doesn't always work that way. There are some truly villainous people, cough, cough, Joffrey Baratheon, who are just <laughs> terrible. Um, but I, you know, as I reflected on sort of my favorite stories, I would think about, you know, which, what, who is Yagrin? And I thought it was really important on the one hand to have Yagrin's POV to be able to show these are assassins, but I don't want you to just judge them by their actions. I want you to be in their head, in the head of one. And I want you to really get the full picture of why they do what they do. A second purpose was Kel's POV is, is we're sort of entering this glamorous world with her. I don't think it was mentioned before that she was a runaway. So she's, she's lived in hiding her entire life. And so she doesn't know what it's like to be seen, let alone to be, you know, a potential heir to this huge magical um, estate. So we get this sort of glamorous introduction to her world. And it's this whirlwind of, etiquette classes and magic classes and all these things. But I think Yagrin's POV gives us a sober look at the underbelly of the world, which is really important going back to that sort of idea of beauty and darkness. I wanted us to be able to see what Kel is falling in love with, but I also wanted us to know that the world is not what it seems on the surface. So Mm -hmm. I thought Yagrin was the perfect person to give us that lens. He really was. And what I loved about him too, is that he's kind of the the catalyst of what's going to like push us into book two. I loved that how he's, because we don't get his POV as much as we get Cal, but it's definitely enough to give us a visual of who he is and what that world is like, as you were saying. And then he's our big, big, important man at the end of the book to um, give us this huge cliffhanger ending, which is very exciting. And so I'm actually wondering how many books are going to be in the series? So there are three planned Okay. But I am flexible. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that sounds fun. I always love that, you know, like when you never know what you're going to get, or maybe, you know, like three main books, and then you come back and write some smaller novellas or something. Well, there is, you mentioned earlier, there's four houses. Um, there's, there was a fifth house, House of Duncan. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to go into what happens with the House of Duncan character that you see in the book, but there is plenty of story in this massive world. So I have three currently in my head, but potentially, awesome. well, two more, I should say, but you know, I'm flexible. Very cool. Well, that's very exciting to hear because I know I'm excited to read what happens next in the series and I'm sure your other readers will be too. So as we wrap up, I just wanted to kind of ask you a silly, fun question. If you lived in this world, which of the six ways would you use your magic? I knew the day was going to come that I had to answer this question (laughs) when I wrote this book. I think I'd want to be a cultivator because a cultivator can facilitate the growth of magic in someone else, but they retain none of it themselves. And I just want to play with all the magic. So (laughs) that's really fun. I love that. I don't know which one I would want to be. I, I kind of liked the um the shifter who can transfigure matter. Like that was really cool and intriguing to me. Yeah. Yes. Very helpful in many ways. So, 
Well, thank you so much for being here and for chatting about House of Marion. This is such a fantastic book. And for everybody listening, um, you really need to go out and pick up this book. And I think you're all really going to enjoy it. Again, you know, we've got this fantastic magic system. We've got enemies to lovers, uh, social elites. It's tiaras that grow out of your head. And can I just tell you, that was one of my favorite elements of this book. It's not just like they're doing these things to earn a tiara. It like, it grows out of their head. I mean, that's fantastic. (laughs) So yeah. And you don't know what it's going to look like. Like it's a complete surprise. Yeah. Which is even more fun. And everybody's look so different from each other. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. It's been so fun. Thank you. No, this is a blast. I really appreciate you reading and all your excitement about the book. It means a lot. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you so much to everybody for listening. Go out and pick up your copy of House of Marion, and we will chat again soon. Today's episode featured the book House of Marion by J.L. A special thank you to J.L. for coming on the podcast and being my guest today. And also a special thank you to Kate and Nefsi at Penguin Young Readers for setting up the interview. Be sure to check out YA Book Chat on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you can have your episodes as soon as they are available. YA Book Chat was created by, is hosted and edited by me, Leah Stuller.